It's time to talk about Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. And now, here's Ira. Las Vegas has seen a resurgence of jazz in the last several years, which means some great musicians are coming here to perform, as my guest is, Emmy-nominated trumpeter and singer or vocalist, as he likes to call himself, Benny Benak, the third performing at Vicks Las Vegas this Thursday and Friday, August 10th and 11th, with two shows each night at 7 and at 8.30. For more information, go to VicksLasVegas.com, and for everything about Benny, go to BennyBennickJazz.com and follow him on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And Benny, first of all, did I get your last name right? You nailed it. You excellent, nailed it right excellent. on. Excellent. Well, thank you. Welcome to the show. And just for our audience to know, because it's important, you are third in a generational line of Pittsburgh jazz notables. So your father, your great-grandfather, or excuse me, your grandfather was Benny Bennick Sr., and then your father, Benny Benek Jr., was a saxophonist and clarinist, he, and he gave you your first professional experience. So you come from a long line of Bennies. And I was thinking if you came from a long line of Bunnies, you could be Bunny Berrigan III. What do you think about that? You know what? <laughs> I, get, I get Bunny Berrigan. I'm Benny Benak. The other one is, on every one of my albums, I've recorded a song by Burt Bacharach. So oh that's another thing. <laughs> Benny Benak. Plays Burt Bacharach. That's I gotta make that an <laughs> Oh, or how about uh, what would be another word that starts with a B? So you can do Benny something Bacharach. Uh, beats Bacharach. How? Belts Bacharach. Yeah, yeah I'm belts. Always, I'm on the alliterative train all the time. I'm <laughs> Benny belts Bacharach. There we go. Okay, fine. <laughs> there it is. Let's talk a little bit before we get about your approach to jazz and your upcoming performance. As I mentioned here in Las Vegas at Vic's Las Vegas. This Thursday and Friday, which is great, two shows each night. Do you feel like you have to live up to your father and your grandfather in terms of their legacy, or are you charting your own course? I'm sure you've gotten this cliche question before, but I think it's important to ask. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I my earliest inspiration in the music before I knew who you know Doc Severinsen was from Miles Davis, from Frank Sinatra to Tony Bennett, you know, I was just getting it directly from the source, from my dad, mm -hmm. from my mother, who also is a, a vocalist and a, a professor of voice at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, where I grew up. So I was getting it at home. And even, uh, you know, recordings of my grandfather were the first earliest recordings I heard of the trumpet. Um, so that inspiration is is at the very core of my musical persona. So, of course, uh, you know, every step that I take, every note that I play, there's a, an element of that tradition in there. Um, and then also it, it, it's a matter of taking that family tradition and trying to fill those shoes. But then, like you said, I have influences of my own. You know, jazz music has been around now for, for 100 years plus, and there's more contemporary inspiration that I've drawn from as well. So I feel like there's as much of, you know, Bunny Berrigan and Harry James <laughs> and, and big band era of trumpet as there is more contemporary guys like even, you know, Roy Hargrove and, and uh, Nicholas Payton and Wynton Marsalis and guys that are, you know, still doing it today. And, and all of that kind of is 
melded together. Any uh, Al Hurd influence? Oh, of course. <laughs> I, I, you know, I really love that era, that lyrical era of trumpet playing. And like I said, that sort of is more my grandfather's right. heyday. So, you know, I, I love that style of playing, you know, really rich vibrato, really melodic mm -hmm. trumpet playing. And, uh, you know, there, there's always an element of that in my performances as well, for sure. I get my uh, my decades mixed up. So you were mentioning an ages. So your grandfather, would that would he have put those records out on 78 or would those be 33 and a third when you, you mentioned your grandfather's uh, recordings? Yeah, both, actually. Oh, he, okay. had, he, had a, he had a couple of recordings and some of them were... Uh, were on 78 and, and some of them were even on like the smaller ones. So, you know, but really I have a lot of tapes because my uncle, uh, Flip Banak, he runs Banak Sound Productions. So my dad and my grandfather were on stage and then my uncle was the one running sound. So even back then, mm -hmm. you know, whether it was eight tracks or cassette tapes, like they were always recording the gigs. So my grandmother's <laughs> house, we had a ton of these cassette tapes and eight tracks that then my uncle digitized right. and now I have them on my phone. Excellent. You know, so that's, Excellent. Yeah, no, I'm sure you listen to it every so often just for that connection, let alone inspiration. Yeah, makes sense. Yes. Did did your parents, uh, given your generational lineage, did your parents encourage you to do what you're doing now, or did they say, you know what, there's enough of the trumpet, let's and enough of the music, let's have you become a doctor or a lawyer? You know, they were always, uh, I would say, very supportive, you know, but they were never helicopter parents. It, my, I didn't have a soccer mom. They weren't stage parents. They didn't force me into it. I never felt like I was playing jazz against my will, you know, while I'd rather be out, you know, running around playing tag or something. Uh, they kind of let me come to the music on my own. And then whenever I did have questions, you know, or I needed advice, uh, they were there and they were supportive, mm -hmm. but it was clear from a very young age that I was going to be going for it. And there was never a question of, you know, the conversation that my dad had with his father, you know, my grandfather would, would be a band director at university of Pittsburgh and Clareton high school. So during the day he was with the marching band out there on mm -hmm. the 50 yard line, he would come home in the afternoon when my dad would get home from school, take a nap. And then turn around, have dinner with the family, and then go out and be in jazz clubs all night. So he was working all day and night. And my father had conversations with his father saying, you know what? If you want to have a family, if you want to build a life, being a, a, a full-time musician, it's it's a lot of work. It's a hustle. And if you're not really serious about it, if you, if you can't live without it, find another way to have music be a part of your life, mm -hmm. but not be the, the bread and butter. And and my father did that because my dad has a day job. He's a marketing department in, in, a, in a bank for 30 years. And for him gigging, you know, he's kind of like, that was his passion. That's his side sure. gig, but it's not, you know, how he paid his mortgage. Um, so there, there was some, some words of wisdom there. And my dad sort of imparted on me. He said, you know, if you have a plan B, you probably should follow it. But it was very clear for me from a very young age that I was going for it full bore come hell or high water. And fortunately, uh, you know, knock on wood, it, it, it's worked out so far. I'm paying the rent. So you're not the working part time at the Ace Hardware store. <laughs> no, I'm not. I even growing up, you know, my summer job, my mom would start to yell at me and be like, should you work at the pool and be a lifeguard? Should you go to the driving range and, you know, shag mm -hmm. golf balls? And then my dad would say, hey, we got a gig, you know, at the uh, <laughs> it, it, 
the local fire hall. So I would have just enough work with my dad that my mom wouldn't make me get a real honest day's work. So I, I've always avoided, you know, real, real jobs. I always say that these hands are, you know, there's no calluses. These are the hands of an artist. <laughs> Where do you get your energy from? Because you are full of it. Those who cannot see you but are listening, you have a lot of energy. So I, I assume you need that for your full time gig. But still, even you're not you're not playing right now. But you just seem to be full of energy. How do you do that? Because I've never had well, that I, even when I was a young guy. I, I, I come by it naturally, but that is something that you know for people that are going to come to the show. Uh, they they that is a remark I often get is that wow you have so much energy seemingly and. Uh, the crazy thing to me is now the way my life is, you know, 80% of the day is waking up at 5 a.m. to go to the lobby, to get to the Uber, to get to the airport, to get to the gig and have the sound check. And then by the time I get on stage for that first show at 7 p.m., you know, I've had about three hours of sleep and six cups of coffee. But, you know, the people that come to the club, they're not concerned with how much sleep I had that night before or if I had two flights and a delay and a connection. They're just there. They're paying good money and they want to see a show. So whatever, you know, trials and tribulations my day was before I step on stage, there really is that moment of almost like, uh, you know, an athlete or something where once you kind of step in between the lines, you have this standard that you have to uphold and I know that the people that are there, they deserve my full energy and they mm-hmm. deserve to be entertained and have a show. And that's something that I love about Las Vegas, because, you know, being an artist and being a musician in Las Vegas also includes being an entertainer and putting on a show. Right. And that's something that comes very naturally to me. But maybe in, uh, you know, more sort of hardcore, uh, diehard New York jazz circles, <laughs> it's almost frowned upon, you know. Yeah, to, you're supposed uh, to be serious and stand there and play, yeah. So I, I couldn't be more excited to come to Las Vegas because I feel like I'm finally uh, in my element, you know. I, I would like to speculate and see if you agree with the speculation that you would enjoy at some point a residency in Las Vegas. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, and and like you said, there's this resurgence now with what the Loudons have done with VIX. And for a long time, a lot of folks that I know from New York were coming and would play at the Smith Center. And that mm-hmm. is sort of like, you, you know, uh, uh, like a concert series for jazz artists. But I've known cats um, that have been in Vegas for a long time. You know, a great musician, Christian Tambor, wonderful vibraphonist mm-hmm. and pianist. And he is the MD for Clint Holmes, who's right. done a lot of stuff. And uh Brian Newman, I'm actually playing at Brian Newman's residency in New York at the Amon Hotel later tonight. And he's been, you know, on the heels of Lady Gaga. He's been doing residencies after dark out there in Vegas. And I hear about stories, you know, even from not too long ago, from the 90s and 2000s, when Lost in Harris and, uh, you know, uh, Jane Monheit and Harry Connick Jr., these, these artists would come out and have residencies. And I'm, I'm all about that. Like the idea of, you know, waking up and coming down to the casino floor and having breakfast and then, you know, playing in the, uh, in the lounge at night. To me, that's that's like a dream. So I, I, I would love to do that at some sure, point. Sure. No, no Ubers, no delayed flights. You're just there. Take the elevator down and you're there. And actually, you know, I could I, see it working for you, Benny, because of your energy. What I mean by that is this. It's not as if you would have a residency and they come in, as you mentioned, in New York as an example, or you'd just be standing on stage playing. I could see you, whether it's the Smith Center and the cabaret there, Myron's Cabaret, or whether it's at Vicks, where you're going to be performing again August 10th and 11th, 
if that kind of setup, I could see that being a, a, a really great residency. People would be coming to see you on a regular basis. I just, I just can, I can see it. So unfortunately, I don't have the power to make that happen. So <laughs> you'll have to forgive me. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we got we got two nights at Vicks, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna blow the roof off of there, and and you know, we'll start there. Yeah, no, no, that's that's great. You mentioned, and a lot of the performing artists who appear on my show talk about that whole thing about touring where you've got the uber you've got the delayed flight you've got setting up and sound checks and the only part they really enjoy is getting on stage and performing even if they're tired as some are and is that the same for you that when you're in that zone you're on the stage you mentioned earlier your obligation to give it all to the audience but you also find it for you that that's your zone where you really come alive and enjoy it absolutely you know the the old adage uh you know, they say you don't get paid to play the gig; you get paid to travel there. You know, <laughs> that's, that's exactly really, right. <laughs> you think about what your quote is or what your fee is. It's it's less tied into <laughs> you know what the concert is and more like how arduous is the journey going to yes. be to get there. Right. Uh, right. And so, in many respects, yeah, it's like your 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 life: planes, trains, and automobiles, and you know, motel rooms. That sort of is the slog. And then the easy part, the fun part is, is getting to perform. That's where, uh, you know, the, the, the trials and tribulations of the day kind of all wash away when you get out there on stage. It makes it all worth it. Yeah, it does. I just thought of another alliteration since you mentioned that earlier and transportation, the Benny Benack bus. What do you think about that? And you just tour. Yeah, Benny Benack barnstorming, <laughs> uh, you know, blazing, blazing bright bus, you know, <laughs> it's, all, it's all there. You know? And I've taken my fair share of the buses, let me tell you. Yeah, I bet. You mentioned your father and your grandfather and some of the idols that you looked at. Do you have, if I, if I had to narrow you down to your top three idols in trumpet playing, who would those three be? And maybe there's more, and I'll let you even say more if you wish. Um, I, I would say uh, my my North Star, really, and th this is, uh, you know, very much uh, a, a jazz purist sort of uh, answer. But I love, love, love the um, hard bop legend Freddie Hubbard. He really is to me, uh, you know, I'm a big sports fan. And uh, when I end up teaching, I'm constantly using these metaphors and I'm alluding to sports references mm -hmm. because I think of playing jazz in a jazz ensemble as being a part of a basketball team and the way that you don't want one person to hog the ball and shoot 50 times. It's more fun when everyone's touching the ball and passing. That's how I like to think about playing with a band. I don't want to dominate the conversation. I want to get the drummer involved. I want to get the piano player to have a conversation with me. Uh, so I'm always thinking in terms of sports, right? And to me, Freddie Hubbard is kind of like the stereotypical like heavyweight champ of the world of the trumpet you know the mentality that he had and i think a lot of respects the great trumpet playing requires a discipline that really you know mastering a craft like an athlete takes because it's such a physically demanding instrument the only way that you're going to get good at hitting a golf ball or uh you know shooting a basketball is repetition and being in the gym for those hours every day and the trumpet you know the trumpet doesn't lie if you are going to be a, a, a master of that instrument, the only way you do it is through toiling away hours every day, playing those exercises. So I really respect trumpet players that not only have a prolific uh, melodic sense, 
but also really play the instrument on a high level because that requires just kind of like a, a an insanity addiction to practicing. And yeah. Freddie Hubbard in his peak was one of the most uh, virtuosic trumpeters. I would say maybe a modern descendant of that. Obviously, Wynton Marsalis, he does things on the instrument that, you know, nobody thought possible. And then to go in the opposite direction, <laughs> I would say the guy who really sort of started it all, Louis Armstrong, mm -hmm. he was doing things on the instrument at his time that nobody thought were possible. So I really like I've put my 10,000 hours, my mastering my craft really is in the trumpet. And for me, the, the singing thing has always kind of just been an easy, breezy, fun thing I did on the side. Uh, in the maniacal side of me, it comes to the trumpet. Now, the ironic thing is, as my career has blossomed, you know, the 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 critics polls that I end up on are for being a vocalist. And, you know, I'm somewhere on like the third page down on trumpet, which is very frustrating, I would imagine. Yeah, it's not. You know what? I'm happy to have my name on any publication anywhere. <laughs> as long as it's not on a rap sheet. I understand. <laughs> and if some, some people resonate with the vocalist side of what I do, you know, now they're they're both equal. They have an equal seat at the table. Right. But in my mind, you know, the trumpet has always been my fixation. I mentioned earlier that some people call you a singer. I introduced you that way. But also, I've heard you refer to yourself as a vocalist. Are you OK with both of those terms? Absolutely. And, you know, people ask me every interview, they say, are you a singer who plays trumpet or a trumpet player who sings? <laughs> you know, I'm like, you tell me, you, yeah. you buy my album, you <laughs> and you can call me whatever you want. You know? <laughs> so you mentioned Freddie Hubbard. We mentioned Louis Armstrong and Whit Marsalis. Someone else who's dedicated a lot of hours to playing and is still around is Doc Severinsen. He would always be playing and practicing constantly. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I saw like a 60 Minutes interview of him even last year where he was like still doing, you know, 100 push-ups every day and still doing his daily trumpet routine well into his 90s, you know. I mean, we had, we of course, uh, may he rest in peace, the great Tony Bennett, right? Like he was sure. still out there on the road uh, in his 90s. I think of Freddie Cole, mm -hmm. Nat King Cole's brother. Mm -hmm. Freddie was out there, you know. You never really retire, as a jazz musician, I mean, the music is in you and you even think of Sonny Rollins doing interviews well into his 90s and, and talking about how he still practices every day and he's not even playing publicly. He's just practicing for his own, you know, his own search of of mastery, you yeah, know, so yeah. I think that that's an inspiration. You know, you never really hang it, hang it up in this business. It's, it, no, you're it's right. Just, it, a broader question I mentioned about your top three idols in trumpet playing. What about top three idols in jazz, which may differ from those first, specifically the trumpet? Now we're talking in general jazz terms. Yeah, you know, I, I hate I hate to be cliche, but I always say kind of like any any guy that's a song and dance man that, you know, wears a tie <laughs> and has a whiskey and, you know, it, it's going to come back to the king of the strip, Frank Sinatra. And, you know, I, I never really concerned myself with reinventing the wheel feeling like I had to be some sort of innovator. Um, so much is just concerning myself with with quality. And, you know, I, I feel like there are plenty of artists out there that really their 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 North Star, their mission is to come up with something that's never been done before or find a way to innovate on their instrument. And for me, I feel like I have a unique voice just coming out of my influences. And I love the old songs and and my heroes were 
people who honored the great American songbook. So, you know, my vocal heroes are Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett. And a more modern offshoot of that is Harry Connick Jr. Mm -hmm. and Mel Torme, you know, and even with the scatting and the vocalese, John Hendricks and Eddie Jefferson. So Diana I've Carl, never perhaps? Really, no, absolutely. You know, and, and Mark Murphy. I mean, I've never concerned myself with I have to take this music to a place it's never been done before. I love singing. I've got the world on a string and I've got the, I've got you under my skin and I'm probably going to be singing those songs until I'm Tony Bennett's age. And you know, that's, that's just fine by me, you know, and Frank Sinatra and now Tony Bennett, you know, that there always seems to be in every generation, there's a Harry Connick, there's a Michael Buble, mm -hmm. there's someone that sort of keeps those songs relevant for a new generation. And, you know, I'm not anointing myself by any means but i feel a responsibility to uh to carry on you know these timeless songs and and make sure that they reach a new generation so uh as long as anybody's listening i i'm going to be there keeping that tradition alive benny what makes those songs timeless because i talked to a lot of performers and the great american songbook as you say lives on generation after generation after generation i don't want to give my opinion but what is your what is your thinking on as to why they are still relevant and why performers such as yourself continue to give your own interpretation of that music and those well, lyrics. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's hard to quantify what makes a, a, a timeless song timeless, right? But I think there are certain elements that we can look at uh, harmonically and melodically. And when you have a melody that is just crafted so strongly, so perfectly, um, as so many great jazz standards, I would also argue, you know, Antonio Carlos Joe Beam, some mm -hmm. of the timeless Brazilian, you know, bossa nova standards where the melody itself is just so strong that you look at jazz music in the great American songbook. As we've gone through the generations, we've seen jazz lend itself to so many different other genres mm -hmm. where now you have people playing great American songbook, Cole Porter and Gershwin. And it is in the context of hip hop, you know, even in the days of Dizzy Gillespie going to Cuba and, you know, Louis Armstrong being on state department tours, jazz has always borrowed from other cultures and other genres. Right. And I think that's what keeps this music timeless is that you can put a jazz uh, a beat, a jazz arrangement on a modern contemporary pop song. You know, you have, uh, postmodern jukebox, they had a Vegas residence for, for a while and their whole shtick is putting jazz from the twenties and putting, uh, you know, jazz, uh, rhythms and swing behind contemporary popular music. And it works because, you know, jazz is kind of like this malleable, uh, democratic art form that you can sort of meld it with any genre and it works. So. As long as people are going to be coming up with new genres of music, you know, there's even a whole genre called electro swing, which is like techno club music mixed with 20s, Great Gatsby, New Orleans, traditional early jazz. And there's kids now that are in high school that are that's the music that they're listening to on Apple. So I feel like jazz is always going to exist and always be around mm -hmm. because it's this living, breathing organism. It's this evolving music that that can adapt to, uh, you know, the times. 
Tell us a little bit about what the show is going to be about at Vic's Las Vegas again this Thursday and Friday, August tenth and eleventh. There, there's there's going to be a lot of that that element of uh, of kind of genre jumping and I'm <laughs> playing, jumping. <laughs> I like I'm that from my new album, Third Times the Charm. It just came out at the end of June, so it's fresh. It's on the radio charts right now, and and it's out there on streaming and YouTube and all of that. And within my album, you know, I have covers of great American songbook standards, but I also have more pop contemporary. I have Burt Backrack on there. Mm -hmm. I have uh, the Guess Who, Lenny Kravitz. I, I do American <laughs> Woman on that album. So there really is this Vegas element of like a variety act where I don't want my audience to get too comfortable where they can pigeonhole me and say, oh, OK, this guy's going to be, uh, you know, crooning uh standards all night no 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 as soon as you think that you're getting <laughs> uh you know the way you look tonight then i'm gonna play an instrumental you know hard bop tune that's freddie hubbard that's right out of art blakey and the jazz messengers or horace silver and his band you know and then i'll come out and pull out a Harmon mute and, and go for chet baker miles davis mm -hmm. and then in the next breath i'm gonna do some tony bennett so you know, I'm I'm always kind of hopping around and, and I like the audience to feel like at the end of the show, they've been on a roller coaster where they've got a little bit of Ray Charles and blues <laughs> and then they've got some Afro-Cuban Montuno and then they've got a little bit of rock and then they've got some jazz. I I, I, wa I want my audience to uh, to feel like, you know, they, they've been on a thrill ride by the time the set's <laughs> over. You mentioned earlier, and I, I think it's a good way to talk about it again at the end. The issue of showmanship, because again, uh, there are a lot of jazz performers that they're great in terms of their performances, but they don't think through the showmanship aspect of it. Again, East Coast versus West Coast, I guess. But you clearly inject showmanship into your performances, and that's also a way of having them not guess what you're doing at any one point. So if you were to balance it all out, how important is that showmanship to you in terms of the overall performance? It's it's at the very core of my mission statement. You know, I, I, I sort of feel very strongly about keeping jazz's audience alive and cultivating the next generation of jazz audience and really trying to be inclusive and bring people into the music. And the way that I feel that is done is not only with the notes on the page, but also with you know, how you present the music. And I, I really feel very strongly about presenting the music in a way that is engaging to an audience. You know, I, I have audiences do call and response. We're like singing along <laughs> like Bobby McFerrin, you know, when we're at the shows, I, I like to get the crowd clapping on two and four and making sure they're not clapping on one and three, you know, I, <laughs> educating the audience as we go. It's an interactive show and also, you know, you talked about my early influences. I mean, my first formative gigs were, you know, swing dances at country clubs and weddings with my mom and dad. And if you're playing a dance set for a wedding, you know, you're not putting a ballad in the middle when everyone's on the dance floor. When you've got them on the dance floor, you've got to keep the energy up. you got to keep right. them dancing until uh, it's time to cut the cake, you know. So I, I grew up with this mentality of... Uh, you know, keep them on the dance floor, keep them, keep them engaged. When I start to see heads look down and people start to kind of like recede into the universe of their phone, mm -hmm. I'm not doing my job. So I really, I try and hold the audience's attention. And then for dear life, 
you know, I, I don't want their eyeballs to, to leave for, for the hour and 15 minutes that I have them. That's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Emmy-nominated trumpeter and singer and vocalist, Benny Benak III, performing at Vic's Las Vegas this Thursday and Friday, August 10th and 11th, with two shows each night at 7 and 8.30. No rest for the weary. For more information, go to VicksLasVegas.com for everything about Benny. Go to BennyBenekJazz.com and follow him on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And Benny, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure, Ira. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to the show. Absolutely. See you next time. You've been listening to Talk About Las Vegas with Ira. Each week, Ira David Sternberg talks with the celebrities, entertainers, writers, and personalities who make Las Vegas the most exciting city in the world. When you